This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason in the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a conversation pre-recorded on February 28, 2020 with Rupert Spira. From an early age, Rupert Spira was deeply interested in the nature of reality. At the age of 17, he learned to meditate and began studying and practicing the teachings of the classical Advaita Vedanta tradition under the guidance of Dr. Francis Rolls and Shantananda Saraswati, the Shankaracharya of the north of India, which he continued for the next 20 years. During this time, he immersed himself in the teachings of P.D. Ospinsky, Krishnamurti, Rumi, Ramana Maharshi, Nisargadatta, and Robert Adams, until he met his teacher, Francis Lucille, in 1997. Francis introduced Rupert to the direct path teachings of Atmananda Krishnamenon, John Klein, and the Tantric tradition of Kashmir Shaivism, and more importantly, directly indicated to him the true nature of experience. In his meetings, Rupert explores the perennial, non-dual understanding that lies at the heart of all the great religious and spiritual traditions, such as Advaita Vedanta, Kashmir Shaivism, Hinduism, Buddhism, mystical Christianity, Sufism, Zen, etc., and which is also the direct, ever-present reality of our own experience. This is a contemporary, experiential approach involving silent meditation, guided meditation and conversation, and requires no affiliation to any particular religious or spiritual traditions. All that is required is an interest in the essential nature of experience and in the longing for love, peace, and happiness around which most of our lives revolve. Rupert is the author of The Transparency of Things, Contemplating the Nature of Experience, Presence in Two Volumes, The Art of Peace and Happiness, and The Intimacy of All Experience, The Light of Pure Knowing, 30 Meditations on the Essence of Non-Duality, The Ashes of Love, Transparent Body, Luminous World, The Tantric Yoga of Sensation and Perception, The Nature of Consciousness, Essays on the Unity of Mind and Matter, and The Essence of Meditation, Volume 1, Being Aware of Being Aware. He is also a notable English potter and studio potter with work in public and private collections. Rupert Spira, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Very nice to be with you. Well, it's wonderful to have you. And um, we will begin, uh, because this is our first conversation with you, um, with the question that has become our typical question for first-time guests. And that is to invite you to cast your mind back to childhood and youth. And if there are any moments, experiences, etc., that in retrospect you would point to and say, ah, that um, was a precursor, a harbinger of the direct path that I would eventually um, espouse um, and work within um, and along. Um, please tell us about that. 
Well, there, there are a few occasions in my uh, childhood and teenage years that I could refer to, but let me just, uh, let me just refer to two. And uh, one of them, I don't actually myself remember, but my uh, mother has recounted it to me so many times that it now feels like my own memory. And, and it was simply this, that at about the age of seven, I said to her that I felt our life was God's dream. Mm -hmm. and that it was our job to make the God's dream as pleasant a dream as possible. Well, that was, I was seven years old then, I'm now I'm almost 60, so that was, that was over 50 years ago, and I have to confess that my thinking hasn't evolved very much <laughs> from those days. The way I express it, it's considerably more sophisticated now, but I basically still think that uh, the universe is, in religious language, God's dream. In more scientific language, the activity of an infinite, um, indivisible consciousness. And that the role that each of us uh, has as apparent individuals is to uh, bring uh, to, to to express that fundamental truth in the way we think and feel and subsequently perceive and relate so that this feeling has really this sense that the universe is sacred or, or divine and that our purpose in it is to to manifest this divinity in form that has been with me since I was a young child. Fast forwarding now about um, maybe uh, 13, 14 years, I'm now a, a 21 year old young man um, working with uh, Michael Cardew and an 80 year old uh, studio Potter, with whom I, I apprenticed on the edge of Bodmin Moor in Cornwall, and do, doing my apprenticeship, and uh, was very much in love with uh, my first girlfriend. Uh, we had been together for a few years since we'd been in college together, and, and in my uh, childish naivety, I just presumed that we would uh, get married and live happily ever after. And uh, one night she just called me to say, I've met someone else, goodbye. And so this was the, the first um, real, um, I, I had been interested in these matters. Since about the age of 16, I had been, I loved Rumi's poetry. By this age, 21 or so, I had, I had been practicing the Mevlevi turning for some time. I had been practicing Gurdjieff's movements. I was uh, doing mantra meditation, studying Raman Maharshi. I was already interested in these matters, but this event in my life turned my interest into a, a passion. I, I thought to myself, if, if the, the person that I have invested 
my entire happiness in can vanish out of my life in a two-minute phone call. What can I rely on in life? Is there anything that is reliable, a reliable source of happiness in life? And so I, I, I reasoned with myself. Uh, obviously, a relationship can come to an end at any moment. Uh, uh, one's health. Uh, one's financial security, one's job, one's home, one's, one's family, any of these things that uh, I had previously, in which I had previously invested my happiness, I realized that any of them could in fact come to an end at any moment. And the happiness that seemed to be derived from them would also come to an end in that moment, as I had very painfully experienced with this breakup of this relationship. So I, this, this uh, deepened and intensified my quest. It, it, where can lasting peace and happiness be found? If it cannot be found in an object, a substance, an activity, a relationship, a state of mind, it, in what can it be found? Where can it be found? Where does true happiness lie? And this was really this event I, all, I, had a, I intuited it at the time, but in retrospect, this was the, the event that really initiated my, although as I say, I was already exploring and searching, but this really took my search onto a much deeper level. So those two experiences, one in my childhood and one in my early 20s, were, were really formative and instrumental for uh, my embarking on this path. Thank you very much. Um, I'll just uh, comment that uh, the uh, the childhood uh, um, comment that you made, the child, the, the comment in childhood, not a childish comment. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> but the comment in childhood that you made um, resonates for me because I've come to think of my own work as being. Um, I mean, one formulation of it, certainly not the only, as uh, being God's senses, God's eyes, ears, mouth, yes. you know, et cetera. Yes. And, um, and not discontinuous from God. Absolutely, but, yes. But, but, um, but that resonated for me. Yes, yes. I, I, but in that, uh, just to follow up a little bit on that, I'm wondering if, because you were able to put it in the context of God, you know, use the use that word, and um, I'm presuming you had some contact with Christianity growing up in England. I assume. Yes, very much so. I was brought up, although my my father was not at all religious. My mother was quite religious, but uh, by the by this age, she had discovered the um, the classical Advaita teaching, which she later introduced me to at, at College House in London. So, yes, I, I had a, a, a conventional Church of England upbringing uh, throughout uh, 10 years of um, English boarding schools. I was going to, to chapel every day. So I, I, I knew uh, and, and still know uh, many of the, of the, uh, the prayers, the hymns and the psalms off by heart. These, we, we, we were, you know, this was part of our, our daily food at, at school. We, we, we were um, 
So I was brought up in, in imbibing all these ideas, first of all, in my childhood, more in a Christian context, but then in my teenage years, mm. my mother and then stepfather used to have that meetings in their home, um, non-duality meetings. So I was exposed uh, both to, the, to Christianity and, and later to the, uh, in my teenage years to the Advaita teaching. But you're right, that this, I always had a feeling for, and this must go back to my Christian roots, I always had a feeling for, for God. In fact, um, when, uh, when uh, Ellen and, and I first got together after we'd known each other for some time, she said, you're, you're really a, uh, a Sufi in disguise, hmm. a, a Sufi on the inside and, and a Vedantin on the outside. And it's true, really. I, I'm a closet Sufi or, or a closet mystical Christian. Well, Bill, thank you. That leads me to a question that I was probably going, I imagined getting to later. Um, but that is about um, longing for God. Um, I, it's not a part of my, it doesn't resonate for me personally, but I have dear friends um, who are uh, wonderful, compassionate, generous practitioners who speak um, to speak of this thing called a longing for God or for the beloved or, you know, however um, you want to, they want to phrase it. And, and because you bring this up now, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm wondering how, in terms of the direct path that I've uh, come to sample in preparation for this conversation, how that how you would configure that as, as anything more than a closet um, lover of God um, or, or however you want to put it. The, I'm glad you asked that question now because the uh, direct path and the path of devotion are sometimes, or, or for those familiar with the, the Sanskrit language, the path of jnana and the path of bhakti, these are sometimes um, expressed and explained as if they were two totally different approaches. Now, in the early stages of both approaches, they could reasonably considered to be different, be considered to be different. But the more deeply you go into either approach, the more one realizes in the end that they are the same approach, that the direct path, I would say, is simply the, the most direct path I know to resolve one's longing for God. Okay. What, what do I, how do I justify that statement? Uh, we have to... Uh, we have to understand in order to justify that statement and reconcile these two apparently different parts, we have to understand that the self of each of us is God's self. In other words, that, that, that there literally is no personal individual being or self. We, we are not human, individual human beings, that there are no individual beings. There is just being. Mm -hmm. And all people and all things 
derive their apparently separate existence from that being. So that the being that shines in us as the, the sense of being myself or the knowledge I am, that is God's being shining in our limited mind. So in order to find God, all one need to do is go to the very essence of oneself. After one's self or one's being has been divested of all the limitations that it acquires from experience. But if we, if we divest our experience of all its limitations, thoughts, images, feelings, what's left is, is naked being. Is that uh, divesting ourselves of the experience per se or simply shifting our attention to it, that which is not that? Yes, it's, it's, not, it's not necessary to actually get rid of any experience. Right. It's simply necessary to see that no objective experience uh, conditions or limits our being. And that when our being is seen as it essentially is, before it is colored or conditioned by experience, it, it is relieved of all its apparent limitations and it shines as infinite being. And that, 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 that infinite being shines in each of us as the knowledge I am, before I am has become I am this or I am that. So the pure knowledge I am is God's knowledge of himself, if I can use the word himself, himself or herself, in each of our minds. So the direct path, which is the pathway that we take from the self that we seem to be, to the self that we truly are, is the path to God. And, and the interesting question to me, because I share Rob's interest in this matter in terms of friends of ours for whom the longing is such a powerful uh, factor in their uh, work and their spiritual practice. And, it's, and what you just described seems to be more accessible and the, the challenge is simply to be able to return to that and return to that and return to that but to have the i would guess i would say the growing intuition in ordinary terms that that is what i'm returning to yes uh, our longing can never be fulfilled or satisfied by any kind of objective experience, however refined or noble that experience may be. In other words, the resolution of our longing yeah. lives at its right. source, not at its destiny. In other words, our longing proceeds from that for which we long. It cannot go towards it. And this was beautifully expressed by, a, by an Italian monk in the 16th century when he said Lord thou art the love with which I love thee hmm. yes yeah this indicates that our longing for God comes from God its source is God that in, in, in the very heart of ourself we can never direct 
our longing towards God. Because in order to direct our longing towards God or indeed any other object, we have to maintain ourselves as a separate self, independent from the object of our longing. And this is one of the, and perhaps the most difficult thing for someone on the path of devotion to not just to understand, but to embrace that as long as they maintain their idea of God, the God for whom they long, they are, without necessarily realizing it, maintaining their idea of themselves as a separate self. So the idea is that God is something that we can long for or move towards subtly maintains the sense of being a separate self, the belief that I am a temporary finite self that is different from or apart from God. And that is, that is blasphemy. Hmm. That's what blasphemy is. Blasphemy is to consider oneself a self or a being apart from God's infinite being. So blasphemy is not to say uh, that there is a God or, or I am God, although it, we should never say such a thing. It doesn't sound right. What is bla truly blasphemous is to say, I am a separate self. Because in doing so, we set ourselves up as a being apart from God's being. And if there could be any other being other than God's being, then God's being cannot be infinite. And if God's being is not infinite, God would not be God. So, I first I I, I tend to agree with that. Uh, I mean, I, I do agree with that. I I, I that feels absolutely uh, uh, true. And dualists would counter that there is a uh, ultimate otherness that we cannot that we can only be in relationship with and that that ultimate otherness is the God that we seek to align ourselves with. Well, if God is other than ourself, then ourself must have an existence that is independent of God and therefore God cannot be infinite. I don't know. That, that, does that follow? I mean, uh, is it, is it, does it follow that we have to be independent? We could be dependent because I think, well, d d dependent, oh, okay, dependent, but different. Yeah, d yeah, dependent, but distinct in that, that we distinct. are. Distinct, yeah. but it, th th there is no room for distinction in infinity. That there is no room for multiplicity in, in infinity. In infinity means without limits. There cannot be more than one thing that has no limits. If there were two things that had no limits, there would have to be an interface or a limit between them. Infinite means without limits. There can only be one infinite. There can only be one being. There can't be God's being plus seven billion other human beings. Because if there were all these finite beings, these seven billion finite beings, not to mention the being of every other object and animal, the seven zillion beings, if there were all these innumerable beings apart from God's being, God's being would be finite, in which case God would not be God. If God is anything, God must be everything. Hmm. The, the, God is simply the religious name for being. 
and, and everything and everyone that exists borrows their apparent existence from God's infinite being. And in other words, God's, God's presence shines in each of us as our knowledge of ourself or the knowledge I am. That's why Moses, God said to Moses, when he, uh, Moses said to uh, God, who shall I, who shall I say sent me when he was returning to the, to the Israelites? And, and, and God said, tell, tell them that I am sent you. Mm. I am is God's Christian name. God shines in each of our minds as the knowledge I am before it is qualified by experience. That is how close God is to our being. It's not that God is close to our being. Our being is God's being. There is no being apart from God's being. It's why Balayani, the Sufi mystic, said, otherness for him is him without otherness. God knows nothing of otherness. God cannot know otherness or separation. The one who knows otherness or separation is an illusory separate self. So, th so this is, um, gets to another area of inquiry that I am trying to work out in, in, the, in the mode of expression that you use, and that's the, the nature of mind the nature of this uh, apparent distinction or apparent the experience of distinction the experience of finiteness the, the 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 cleaving of experience into subject and object you know in one in one sense is uh can be understood as the biggest obstacle to uh our return to god and in another sense it can be understood as the greatest miracle of existence because it seems so strange to me that out of oneness and out of being that there can be the experience of separation or the experience of, um, of finitude. Yes. Yes. But if there is going to be manifestation, there has to be form. And if there is going to be form, there have to be limits. You cannot have an unlimited form. So manifestation must appear as a multiplicity and diversity of limited forms or objects. Now, infinite consciousness, let's use the more scientific term now, infinite consciousness cannot by itself know a multiplicity and diversity of limited forms because the infinite can only know the infinite. The finite can only be known, not by the finite, but from the perspective of a finite mind. So it is only possible for an object, a, 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 a finite object, to be known from the perspective of a finite subject. You can't have one side of a coin. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's exactly the same reason that when we fall asleep at night our own individual mind is an indivisible field and yet when we have a dream let's say we dream of the streets of Paris we don't view the streets of Paris directly from the perspective of our dreaming mind 
asleep in Sebastopol or wherever we are. We, we dream, our mind dreams the streets of Paris within itself, but in order to view those, the streets of Paris, it simultaneously localizes itself within its own dream. And it is only from the perspective of a localization, a localized perspective within its own dream that our mind is able to view its own activity as the streets of Paris. So this mechanism of a single field, that is our mind in this case, of dividing it itself into two, or rather seeming to, dis to, to, to divide itself into two, is very well known to us. Our own mind divides itself every night in a dream into a subject, and a multiplicity and diversity of objects. Now, given that I would suggest each of our minds are like microcosms of infinite consciousness, we can expect our individual mind to behave on a smaller scale as infinite consciousness behaves. So could it be that each of our minds are the localized perspectives in consciousness's dream, in God's dream, through which God sees its own activity as the outside world. Yeah. In other words, just as, and, and just as when we wake up from a dream, to go back to the analogy, when we wake up from the dream in the morning, we realize, oh, I wasn't a separate person in the world. The world didn't consist of a multiplicity and diversity of separate objects and people, each with their own independent existence. The entire thing was the manifestation of my own indivisible, unlimited mind. But consider the possibility that the universe is the activity of a single, infinite, indivisible mind or consciousness. God's dream to go back to my childish uh, intuition. But that in order to uh, view the activity of consciousness as a world or as the universe. Consciousness has to localize itself in that world. And each of our minds are localized perspectives within consci the consciousness's imagination. Yeah. Well, th thank you for this. Um, it's interesting. I was watching one of your videos. Um, I think uh, it was called A New Model of Karma, Deep Sleep and Death. And, and you're um, offering a, uh, a reversal of the model that um, is available in the Western um, uh, worldview, where um, the waking state and matter are seen as primary, the dreaming state um, and uh, mind as seen are seen as secondary and deep sleep is tertiary and you link um, deep sleep to consciousness and you reverse it so yes. that consciousness and um, uh, deep sleep are primary and so on and this is uh, uh, I mean what you've just said is is of course, congruent with with yes. with this model yes. that that you laid out in that talk, but 
the question I had uh, from the, that lingered from the talk to me, and it was only a 20 minute uh, um, snippet of, as it were, um, is how is it, is it a projection or is it, is there evidence to link consciousness to deep sleep? I'd like you to speak more about that if you, if you would, because uh, that left me um, pondering um, uh, the model, uh, which I like, by the way, um, especially the, the dream aspect that you've just been elucidating here. Is there any evidence to suggest that consciousness is present in deep sleep? Is that, is that your... Or, or that they are essentially equivalent in a, in a certain sense. Well, let's, you have presumably, both of you and, and all of your listeners, presumably had the experience of being woken from deep sleep by an alarm clock. Sure. Now, if consciousness was not present in deep sleep, what would have heard ah. the alarm clock? Got it. That's a good answer. That's, that's, that's a line of evidence I can accept. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. So going on from there, could it be that deep sleep is not the absence of consciousness or awareness, I use the words synonymously, could it be that deep sleep was not the absence of awareness, but rather the awareness of absence? Okay. That would be consistent with our experience. A uh, 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 particular experience that I gave you the example of, the fact that in deep sleep we can be woken by the sound of an alarm clock and therefore there must be something present in deep sleep that is aware of the sound. But it's also consistent with our more generalized experience, namely that we never have the experience of the absence or the disappearance of awareness. Okay. So both these two, these two facts, one, we never have the experience of the disappearance or absence of awareness, and then the specific example of the alarm clock uh, suggests that awareness is continuous or more accurately ever present and that what we call deep sleep is just the absence of any objective content in awareness. Now, given that this is that this um, statement or this possibility is consistent with our experience, it's not for the one who claims that awareness or consciousness remains all alone in deep sleep to prove it. It is for the one who claims that consciousness or awareness disappears in deep sleep or indeed at any other time to prove it. Why? Because there is not one shred of evidence for it. Nobody has ever or could ever or will ever have the experience of the absence or the disappearance of awareness precisely because awareness is the prerequisite for any experience. So it is impossible to have the experience of the absence of awareness. So I would suggest that this suggestion that awareness is ever present or eternal is actually consistent 
with experience and that the one who claims that awareness disappears has to find evidence of it. It seems that sometimes these uh, disagreements break down on semantic lines and that I've noticed that particularly materialists will construe consciousness as that which is conceptually accessible. And as such, then, a discontinuity in consciousness is seen as a real discontinuity as opposed to an experience of discontinuity. Yes, well, let, let's do our best to define consciousness or awareness. First of yeah. all, as I said, I use the words synonymously. Not everyone does, but at, at least for this conversation, can, can we yeah. use the two words um, interchangeably? And let, let's make a, a provisional definition consciousness ultimately cannot be defined. Uh, it's the one thing that everything else can be defined in terms of, but it cannot be defined in terms of anything else. But, but let's do our best to, to make a, a definition of consciousness and awareness. And I, I would suggest this, that consciousness is that to which all experience appears. It is that in which all experience appears and it is that out of which all experience is made or of which all experience is the activity. Okay. So that's clear. Yeah, that, that's clear. So in that, in that sense, then since it is prior to experience or a, uh, yes, a prerequisite for experience, yes. then, then yes. the content of experience is subject to, change as we've been talking about absolutely experience i nearly always use the word experience uh, to imply objective experience thoughts images feelings sensations perceptions activities relationships etc etc these are they all have an objective quality to them and they are all by definition appearing evolving disappearing the only element of experience that doesn't appear, evolve, or disappear is the simple fact of being aware or awareness itself. It is the ever-present background, the ever-present unchanging background of all changing experience. And so out of that uh, background will arise a apparent subject and object uh, pair for a given moment of experience which yes. will arise and pass again. Yes, this, this um, background consciousness, um, before anything is manifest within it, is a, a dimensionless field of infinite potential. But in order to manifest that potential, the subject-object relationship is the means by which it does so. Right. And, and the dynamic patterns of the subject-object relationship as it arises gives rise to the consistencies that we would call uh, uh, formation or, or... Yes, yes, yes. And, and of, of course, as we observe what we call the laws of physics, they are, they are very stable. And there's, all, all we are doing in this uh, consciousness-only model is we are upgrade, we're not denying the laws of physics, we are just reinterpreting them in line with a different model. We are upgrading the laws of physics 
And rather than seeing them as, as laws that govern the way matter behaves, we are now seeing them as laws of mind, laws of the way consciousness unfolds right. as the activity of mind within itself. And but, 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 but to be fair, I mean, uh, uh, that, that statement gives solace to the materialist as perhaps having a safe uh, passage to uh, follow you on the direct path. But that, that formulation actually suggests that there's much beyond the laws of physics that uh, may be in the realm of possibility. Yes. Yes, yes, this um, consciousness-only model that, that I'm suggesting doesn't, doesn't deny um, the, 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 the discoveries of, of contemporary science. It just puts them into a different context, right. gives them a different interpretation. Yeah, I wanted to I'd move back a little uh, again to um, method a little bit. And there's a quote that you have in Intimacy Experience that Intimacy of all experience that caught my mind, and I'll, I'll just read this. Uh, you wrote that the movement in understanding from I am something to I am nothing could be called the path of wisdom or discrimination. The movement in understanding from I am nothing through I am everything to simply I could be called love. And what caught my eye about that was that I remember reading, um, it may have been an I am that, but it was a, a quote from Nisargadatta Maharaj, uh, who said something very similar to that. Although in his quote, he spoke about how it's between these two poles that my life orbits or something along those lines. Whereas there's a sense with uh, the way that you express it, that in fact, the uh, path of wisdom or the path of discrimination is a means to a deeper resolution and that deeper resolution is found in the path of love and ultimately just the direct abiding in the eye of experience. Yes, let me elaborate a little on what I meant by this piece that you quoted. Um, the, the, the first, could, could you just read it again? Remind yeah. me. Of it. The movement and understanding from I am something to I am nothing could be called the path of wisdom or discrimination. The movement and understanding from I am nothing through I am everything to simply I could be called the path of love. Okay, so we have these two pathways. The, the pathway from I am something to I am nothing. And then the second pathway, the pathway from I am nothing to I am everything. So the first pathway, the path of discrimination, or the path of wisdom, I sometimes refer to it as the inward-facing path. Um, in the Zen tradition, they call it the great death. It, it, it's, the, it, it's, the, it's the pathway that is, in my opinion, best um, explained in the Vedantic tradition. It's the path from I am something, that is, I am a person, I am a man, I am a woman, I am 59 years old, I am a father, I am a husband, etc., etc. That, that's I am something. It's a path from there to I am nothing, meaning I am not a thing. I am not any kind of object of experience. What I essentially am is not a thought, an image, a feeling, a sensation, a perception, etc. So it... This is a it, it, it's it's the via negativa, mm -hmm. right? Where we where we separate everything from ourselves that can be separated from. We divest ourselves 
of all everything that is superfluous to us. No, no thought is essential to us. No feeling, sensation, perception is essential. When all of these have been removed from us, what remains is pure consciousness. When I say, I say pure consciousness, I don't mean morally pure. I mean pure in the sense that it has no objective features. And it is, it is not a thing. It is in that context that I use the word nothing. That's, yeah. a, that's, the, that's the path of discrimination. You trace back your experience to your innermost being and you find your pure being there, unlimited, ever-present. Its nature is peace. But then in order to affect this recognition of our true nature, we have had to separate ourselves from everyone and everything. And having recognized our true nature, that's only half the path. We then have to go back and revisit the objects, the people, the experiences, the life from which we previously separated ourselves on the inward facing path. We have to go back and unite these two apparently separate elements of experience, myself, pure consciousness, and the content of experience. And that is a path, uh, it's called the great rebirth in the Zen tradition. It's a path of, if the first path is a path of exclusion, this path from I am nothing to I am everything is a path of inclusion. Hence, I call it a, a path of love. And it is a collapsing, in most cases, a gradual collapsing of the apparent distinction between ourself and everyone and everything else. Got it. And, and that, sorry, just to, to interrupt you, Stuart, uh, that, that if the first path is, uh, in my opinion, best um, elaborated on the Vedantic, in the Vedantic approach, this second path, the, the, the great rebirth, the, the, the path of inclusion, is, is best expressed in the Tantric traditions, mm. particularly in my experience, the, the Tantric tr tradition of Kashmir Shaivism. Can we, uh, can, I just want to follow up on that, uh, on both of those um, uh, points that you make, because I think it's, um, I, I'm curious why you point to these two particular um, formulations of these two, two general paths that, that you've just um, described for us. Um, why in the first case and why in the second case the effectiveness that you're discussing? Simply because most people start from the belief and more importantly the feeling, I am something. Mm -hmm. I am someone. I am a person. I am a man. I am a woman. I am a mother. I am a father, etc. So the teaching, awareness is not in need of any teaching. So the spiritual teaching is not addressed to awareness. Mm -hmm. It is addressed to the person that we believe and feel ourselves to be. So as a concession to that apparently separate person, the teaching says, no, or the teaching begins at least by saying, see that what you essentially are doesn't have any personal limited qualities. So the reason we start with I am something is just because that's, that's where everyone, that's what most people feel. Mm -hmm. So we first of all have to discover what we essentially are. 
because if we if we started off with uh, experience as a person I am something and we simply tried to unite with everyone or everything in fact that's what most people do most people don't take the inward path back to their true nature most people feel this sense of separation this longing for happiness or this longing for God and as a result they go outwards directly towards the objects of experience the objects of experience that we on the tantric path will later go towards but not before we've explored our true nature if the separate person goes directly towards those objects that that is in fact what everybody is doing all the time and it can never lead to fulfillment mm. well I, I get that and I'm and and yet I'm wondering like uh, you mentioned the via negativa which in which is a an aspect of the Christian tradition, surely. Um, and so I'm wondering why you would just, uh, um, not point to that as well as um, as something from 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 the other uh, perspective or tradition that you that you pointed do, to. Do, do you mean why would I not uh, point on the inward-facing path? Why do I not point towards a, a more Christian approach? Well, as approach? as one possibility uh, well, among others. Well, I've uh, I've explored a lot of approaches, mm -hmm. um, and this uh, direct uh, from mantra meditation, the Sufi turning Gurdjieff, uh, uh, as I said earlier, mm -hmm. this um, this direct path takes us, as the name implies, directly from wherever we are in experience to our essential nature, pure being or the fact of being aware. Okay. So it is simply that it is that the fastest, the shortest, the easiest, the quickest way to go back mm -hmm. to your true nature. In, in, in all other paths, uh, we could call them progressive paths. And please don't uh, please understand I'm not um, I'm not criticizing these paths or, or I'm, I'm mm -hmm. simply trying to describe them in all other paths we give our attention to some kind of object of experience for instance let's take mantra meditation which I practiced for 20 years that, that we, normally it is recognized that in the waking state the mind is giving itself continuously to 10,000 things from one to another to another so it was originally thought that the direct path was too radical a step for such an agitated mind to take and that such a mind needed to be steadied first on a single object so such a mind was given a mantra and the teaching says instead of paying attention to 10,000 things now you pay attention to this one thing it's still an object it's not your true nature it's a sound and then as the mind steadies itself on this object it, it could equally be the breath uh, the, uh, an image but let, let's take a sure. mantra. as the mind steadies itself on this object you begin to repeat the mantra less and less frequently and more and more softly in other words the object on which you have fixed your attention begins to fade and as the object of our attention fades in the absence of any other object 
upon which to fix our attention, the mind gradually sinks back into its source. That is a perfectly valid path. As I say, I, I, I practiced it for, for 20 years. It's, it's, it's called the progressive path. And what is meant by that is simply that it, it goes via an object, in this case, mm -hmm. the mantra. Mm -hmm. The difference between all such paths and the direct path is that in the direct path, we go from wherever we are in experience directly back to ourself the fact of being aware or the presence of awareness we don't go via an object so what why do i not mention any other of any of these other paths i i have practiced some of them and and i i guess after uh 40 years of exploring the, these matters i i find the direct path that the the, the quintessence of of the spiritual and religious traditions it, it's it's the it's the ultimate prayer and the highest form of meditation in uh, in the zen tradition uh, sorry should uh, for instance in the zen tradition one of the zen patriarchs ikiyu he said of all the koans i is the highest that's it. That was he was saying. The di that's that's the an expression of the direct path in the Zen tradition. In the Christian tradition, I am is God's presence, is God's name. Take the thought I am, and allow your attention to be drawn to that to which it refers. That's the direct path in the Christian tradition. Okay. So so I um I, I understand and I appreciate uh, the way that you explain this and. I, I, my question or my next question is uh, again partly about method and I'll start with a uh, personal anecdote um, when I was a kid probably eight years old uh, I was uh, precocious interested in science I was learning about astronomy at the time and so I had I was kind of building this conceptual map and I was outside, I still remember vividly, I was playing on the street. I remember my friend's little brother was riding on a bicycle, kind of circling around. And I, my mind was going through this, I understand the planet, I understand the moon, I understand the solar system, I understand the uh, galaxies, and I was playing this out. And then all of a sudden I said, what am I? And it was like I was just shocked, completely shocked, because it was a category of experience that was completely uh, uh, could not be grasped. Yes. And that that stayed, that, that experience is crystal clear, stayed with me in my entire life. Yes. And at the time, I had that experience, and then uh, the phenomenal world just enveloped me again. And how, I, old were, how old were you, Stuart, when you had this? I probably seven, eight, or nine. Yes. You know, something yes. like that. Well, th that, that was an initiation, a spontaneous right. initiation. And... Um, Sorry, I'm interrupting you, but it, it's a, it was um, uh, you, you, uh, you, you were just saying then, you, you then got lost in phenomenal experience for some time, and you obviously came back to it later right. in your life. But if you had been with an adult, or, or not necessarily an adult, but someone at that time who could have interpreted your experience to you, yeah. you, you may have pursued that question, what am I? 
but I'm not suggesting that you should have done. You were a seven-year-old no. boy. It was appropriate that you that you went out into the well, well, but that but that that is getting to my question because I think I think what I was getting at, and, and I was describing that partly to frame that um, I have direct experience that it's possible to have a sudden encounter with the uh, the, the the direct knowing uh, of oneself. Absolutely, and there still seems to be factors or habits of phenomenal manifestation that have, need to be worked with. We need to take a short break at the hour. You are listening to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me is co-host Rob Smith. This week on the show, we feature a conversation pre-recorded on February 28, 2020 with Rupert Spira. Rupert Spira is an international teacher of the Advaita Vedanta Direct Path Method of Spiritual Self-Inquiry through talks and writing, and a notable English potter and studio potter with work in public and private collections. Rupert will be giving a seven-day retreat at Mercy Center, California, that's Friday, March 20th through Friday, March 27th in 2020. The Mercy Centers at 2300 Adeline Drive in Burlingame, California, and the event will be live-streamed as well through the whole time. For more information, go to non-duality.rupertspira.com. We'll be right back. Welcome back to The Mystical Positivist. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined in the following by co-host Dr. Robert Schmidt, director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Many Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. We now continue with a conversation pre-recorded on February 28, 2020 with Rupert Spira. Rupert Spira is an international teacher of the Advaita Vedanta Direct Path Method of Spiritual Inquiry through talks and writing, and a notable English potter and studio potter with work in public and private collections. And I've, I've, I've heard you, when you speak about this, that you, you describe two stages, which is, first there's a stabilization in the ability to return to one's true nature, but even with that stabilization, there is then the work of a lifetime, which is to yes, allow absolutely. that allow that stabilization to permeate all aspects of one's life. Yes. And when I look at that latter stage, I would use a word like progressive to describe that. And and so I'm in a sense I'm the, what I'm wondering is you know in in a way you flipped around what some traditions do. Like our work was uh, largely inspired by the Gurdjieff work, although our teacher's teacher and lineage is a rogue, you know, a blasphemous, a non-Gurdjieff tradition, which I think you probably understand what that means. Yes, yes. Um, yes. But the sense that I had in my uh, uh, practice was not going to that, so much to that fundamental place, but going through a kind of a, uh, a, a progressive work of reducing the uncontrolled inertia associated with the formatory mind. Yes. And that then in that stability, there was a uh, a greater opening to what I would call uh, essential nature. 
And so it's, a, it's almost like the reverse of what you described. It's like do, do the work on the psychological level or the quasi-spiritual level, and then, then you, you are ripe enough for yes. more direct access. Yes, and, and th this is the, the, the basic idea behind the progressive path. Right. Is that one must um, work uh, on one's discipline, the mind and the body for a number of years before one is considered sufficiently mature to hear the truth about one's true nature. And then your teacher tells you the truth and you're, you're, you're able to go there directly. That, that, is, that is the basic idea on the progressive path, a gradual refining of the mind and the body until one is ready to, the mind is ready to sink into the heart of awareness. On the direct path, there is a, a different approach, namely that everyone is qualified in their current condition to embark on the direct path simply by virtue of the fact that they are aware. Mm -hmm. In other words, that awareness is present. However, even if you're in a deep depression, the only reason you, you can feel or say that you are depressed is because you know it, you are aware of it. So awareness shines even in, in a deep depression. So in, in the direct path, we don't pay attention. Uh, we don't get involved with, with the manipulating the content of our experience. We just go directly, irrespective of the content of experience, to the fact of being aware or awareness itself. However, it would be a, a mistake to think that the, the, the spiritual um, process, if we can call it that, is complete with the, this recognition of one's true nature. Because we could say there are three steps. First of all, there is this um, glimpse or or taste, this recognition of our true nature, very occasionally the, the first glimpse or recognition is so powerful that one never loses it again and one remains firmly established there for the rest of one's life. Those cases are extremely rare. What is much more common is that uh, through the kind of experience you described, Stuart, as a seven-year-old boy, we have, and, and I would suggest that everybody has had this experience at some stage in their life, that everybody gets a taste of their true nature. Mm -hmm. And that, and very often that first taste, as was your case, Stuart, that first case is like a free gift. It is unsolicited. It just dawns upon you spontaneously. Many people experience this. But after that, it, it is one's own job, one's own practice to establish oneself in that understanding. So there is the first glimpse or taste of one's true nature. Then there is the establishing of oneself in or as one's true nature. And then we have to, I, I would suggest we have to return to our experience, thoughts, feelings, activities and relationships. And realign them mm -hmm. with our new understanding. In other words, the, the, the preparatory work that often takes place on the progressive path, which is not considered the prerequisite on the direct path, 
on the direct path, it needs to be done after the right. recognition of your true nature. So it, it, uh, it is necessary, I, I would suggest, to, to revisit the entire realm of one's experience, not just the way we think mm. and feel, but the way we act, perceive and relate and realign it with this new understanding. And that is a lifetime's work. So, so I presume that that's what you're referring to with um, the second journey that you were. Perfect. Uh, um, exactly. That is the, 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 the part of the tantric approach. Right. In Christian terms, uh, it's a, I don't, I'm quoting someone, but I don't know who I'm quoting. I once heard somebody said, when the path to God comes to an end, the path in God begins. Hmm. So yeah. that would be a Christian formulation of this second stage of the past, the, 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 re, the, the, the realignment of all realms of our experience with our enlightened understanding. And the tantric path is, as I understand it, uh, really is the putting of full attention on, on life and in a, in a sense, digesting life or metabolizing life such that you dissolve away the sense of difference and the sense of uh, identification. And it becomes uh, not something that happens to us, but something that we just express within. Yes. So, yes, you, you're right. If I just elaborate that most people feel I am a temporary finite separate self. In other words, to a greater or lesser extent, they feel that they are separate from everyone and everything else. Now the, the Vedantic path, we could say that it increases that sense of separation. I'm not this, I'm not this, I'm not this. We put everything, not just other people and things, but our own thoughts and feelings. We put at a distance from ourself. Now, the tantric path is the opposite. We collapse the ordinary distinction that most people make between themselves and all other objects and peoples. In the tantric path, that distance is collapsed. So, there's, in, the, in the Vedantic path, we, we uh, I am not this, I am not this, I am not this. We, we we increase the distance between ourselves and experience. And in the tantric path, we collapse it. Yeah. And in, in, no, in neither of those two paths is there room for a separate subject or person. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit more about the, the, the tantric side of things um, in terms of how you perhaps counsel or advise folks um, who come to you and ask you about this. Let's, let's, say, let's say they've had, sorry, let's say they've had, they've, they've netty netty, you know, not this, not this. And they've um, gotten to the place where they will benefit from going outward again. Let's take an example, for instance, um, A, an a feeling of a feeling of sorrow. Okay. And the the approach on the Vedantic path to the feeling of sorrow is is th this is an emotion. It is not what you essentially are. 
you are that which is which knows or is aware of the sorrow mm-hmm. so in, in so this you you separate yourself out from the from the sorrow and on the on the tantric part we do the opposite we 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 bring instead of pushing the sorrow away we bring it closer and closer and closer until there's no distance between ourself and the experience so if you if we use an analogy it's only possible to to see an object that is at a distance from our eyes if you take your finger and you place it 2 feet away from you you can see it you bring it closer you can keep seeing it you can go you can see your finger all the way until it touches your eye then it's no longer possible to see the finger the eye and the finger have merged and the finger can no longer be seen as an object but it's exactly the same way with experience let's stick with the experience of sorrow if we if we can name an experience an emotion such as sorrow it is only because we have placed ourselves at a distance from it and like the finger relatively speaking that the eye perceives we are knowing the experience as sorrow and as such as uncomfortable because we have separated ourselves from it as a separate knower or a separate subject of experience so in a tantric approach we bring the the feeling closer and closer and closer and closer until we can no longer name it the the experience still has a certain intensity mm-hmm. it's not nothing there is something that is being experienced but without separating ourselves from it as a separate knower or subject we cannot say what the experience is mm. all we can say as it has a certain intensity and not knowing what the experience is we cannot know whether it is pleasant or unpleasant so right there at the very heart of the feeling which we once considered to be unbearable we find the peace which we previously sought by avoiding or getting rid of the experience so in the tantric approach we find the peace and happiness for which we long at the very heart of even our most distressing and painful experiences whereas in the vedantic approach we find the same peace and happiness by witnessing that experience from a distance so the uh, the tantric approach that you're describing uh i think when i use the word metabolizing it, it's a similar thing that they, it ceases to be we put our full attention or our full, full experience on on that which is arising now if it's a feeling well it it's more than just it starts with putting your attention on it as opposed to uh uh distracting yourself from the the feeling but it, it it's it's um with well, being the, the ta- feeling right being the feeling being, yeah. as i think you mentioned earlier in the tantric approach they talk about devouring your experience yeah. you have to take it in so deeply that you can no longer separate yourself from it and know it at a distance and do you find that uh when that process is engaged let's say systematically by uh, a practitioner that they 
factors, the factors that give rise to identified states of mind begin to subside? Yes, yes, because uh, I recommend this, this tantric approach, particularly in relation to afflictive emotions. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the more, to, to begin with, it might take uh, someone, for instance, listening to our conversation for the first time, may have to um, sit down with a feeling of sorrow or depression or jealousy for uh, 20 minutes or so and, and really experiment with what we are suggesting before they begin to get a taste of what we are speaking of. But once you've done that once or twice, it no longer takes you 20 minutes. It takes you two minutes. And in time, the, you don't even let the emotion um, uh, separate itself from you. You, you mm-hmm. don't let the emotion uh, take place at a distance from yourself. So, so the, the emotion, as it arises, as the sorrow, the fear, the jealousy, the anxiety ar- arises, it is, it is almost immediately dissolved in this contemplation because you, you just become accustomed to uh, dealing with your emotions in this way. Is it, is it a uh, resolution or is it uh, more that the, in that space with that, with that presence that one simply has choice, one has the presence to see and to know the arising taking place and to decide whether or not to uh, pull it up or let it go? Well, in time, the arising begin, these, these emotions begin to arise less and less because yeah. they rely on our rejection of them for their existence. Right. Our emotions, our suffering thrives on our resistance to it. The one thing our suffering cannot stand is being welcomed, brought close, allowed. So in time, these afflictive emotions, they, they, they simply cease arising as frequently as they used to. And when they do arise, they last longer, simply because they are neutralized in this loving and disinterested contemplation. So do you see you know, the function of life providing that the occasions for this uh, tantric level work, or do you consider that um, one aspect of the role of a teacher is to be the occasion of the opportunity for the arising of afflictive emotions in the face of a student such that they have accelerated practice in doing this kind of work? Well, it, it's true that our life provides endless and almost continuous opportunity to explore one's experience in this way. Because to begin with, they may be the, the, the uh, huge emotional eruptions of, of grief or sorrow or jealousy or anxiety. But in time... Uh, our afflictive emotions become much subtler. They may no longer be the big emotional outbursts. It could be the 
the slightest resistance to our current experience. It, mm -hmm. On most people's scale, it wouldn't even register as suffering. But the more sensitive we become, the more sensitive we become to, to even the, the slightest uh, manifestations of resistance. So life is always providing us with these opportunities. But uh, a, a teacher or a friend um, can can suggest to us or, or, or help us, suggest ways that we might explore our experience that leads to uh, the resolution of conflict and suffering more efficiently, more quickly. Yeah, I was thinking of something even more uh, direct. Uh, my own teacher could be incredibly annoying. <laughs> and it, one of his, if I were to say, superpowers was... Uh, that he had the capacity that would cause people's hair to sort of stand up on end if they were around him uh, for no real obvious uh, reason. And that being in that presence uh, was very, very useful for this kind of work because... Well, I think most people's lives are difficult enough and challenging enough without the need of a teacher to provoke them. Yeah and provide more difficulties and i have to say absolutely no implication for your teacher or no disrespect mentioned but i am very wary when i hear of teachers who behave in egoic ways mm -hmm. and then justify their egoic behavior um, by saying that they do this consciously in order to provide their students the ability, the, 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 the opportunity to awaken. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a, um, obviously a, a touchy area. Well, I, uh, I think and, we're and in agreement on that, on this point for sure. Um, but that um, leads to another general area that I wanted to ask you about, and that is, um, an ethic, is there an ethical component that you would point to or delineate uh, with regard to the direct path? Yes, there is. Uh, I, I think uh, St. Augustine answered this question. Um, and, and it's the, the best answer I know, and I cannot improve on it. He was asked the same question about the moral or ethical implication of this understanding. And he simply said, love and do whatever you want. And of course, we have to understand what he meant by love. Love means mm -hmm. recognize that you share your being with everyone and everything. Once you, if you not only understand that, but you feel that and you act in accordance with that feeling understanding, then that's the only moral guidance you need. In fact, the moral guidance that most of us are given in society, the Ten Commandments, well, these are, uh, this is, all these are examples of provisional moral guidance mm -hmm. that is necessary for those of us that do not yet understand and feel that we share our being with everyone and everything. And therefore, these moral guidelines are given to us to keep us on the right path until such a time as we are in contact with this understanding where we feel that 
our self is the self or the being of everyone and everything, in which case all that is necessary is to, to lead one's life uh, to the best of one's ability in a way that is consistent with this feeling understanding. So um, um, that sounds like, in particular, the um, consideration that would be happening in the second half that you were describing earlier. Of, um, well, th th these two these two pathways, the inward-facing path and the outward-facing path, it, it's a little. I don't mean to imply that. You know, you spend X number of years on the inward-facing path, sure. then you right. then, then you transition to the I, uh, outward right. it, it, in in most people's experience, we go back and forth between yeah. the two, and it, the understanding we gain from each path um, supports and supplements the 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 uh, our practice on the on sure. the other path. So um, and likewise, our the way we behave, the way we act. And relate is not something we simply address after we have recognized our true nature. It, it's it, it, it's something that we should continually be addressing at at, at every stage of understanding. Okay. So and 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 by ethical an ethical framework, I certainly didn't mean to imply that it has to be a set of rules. No, or, no, I, I, I understand. Yes, yes, I understand. No, I, I think I understand your, your question about how to, how to live in the world. Yes, that's right. I think these are the three, um, the three issues. We've touched on all of them in more or less detail this conversation. The non-dual understanding really addresses three questions. One, how do we find lasting peace and happiness? Mm -hmm. Two, what is the nature of reality? And three, how should we live in the world? Yeah. And the non-dual teaching addresses all three questions. So we've already talked a little bit about, or you've spoken a little bit about um, in response to this question as Stuart asked just a short time ago. So I'm wondering if, um, oh, and by the way, uh, this question comes from having seen your response in a, in a, in a video where you described uh, two kinds of, of objects created by the mind and in, on spiritual, and I guess what you're calling the progressive path, um, there might be a range of different, more subtle objects. Um, like mantra, like um, gurus, like um, uh, chanting, etc. Um, and so I'm wondering about your attitude. You 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 seem to indicate a moment ago that a friend or or teacher is is a or a set of terms that you would use to describe someone who is of assistance on the and a direct path, if I'm not mistaken. And, um, and I'm wondering if, if, um, if you could elaborate just on that a little bit, a little bit more, if there's more to say about that, there may not be, but, um, but I'm, I'm curious how you, how you configure that, that um, relationship. We talked about ethical relationships and 
brief, brief, brief reference was made to how uh, to mistakes that can be made yes. in in such an area. So, um, so I'd like to hear more. See you elaborate on this a little bit more. Yes, almost all of us uh, who who um, either are or have been lost in the content of our experience, overwhelmed by our um, activities and feelings. And almost all of us need some assistance to find our way back to peace and happiness. Very occasionally, one can find their own way home, but these are these, these examples are extremely rare. Almost all of us need help to disentangle ourselves from the overwhelming nature of experience, our, our, our feelings, our thoughts, our stories, our conditioning, our, etc. And uh, a, a so-called teacher is simply the friend who, who helps us returned to the innate peace of our true nature. It's a relationship of, of friendship and there's no hierarchy in it. It's a relationship that is based on mutual love and respect. It, it, it's friendship. What, what, what would one want more for one's friend other than peace and happiness? If you think of all your friends, would you wish any of them anything more than peace and happiness? Isn't that what we would all like to have, not only for ourselves, but also to give to our friends? That, that's the, the quintessence of friendship, to, to, to share this peace to share happiness. The so-called teacher is simply a friend that helps us find our way home, our way back to our innate peace. And I prefer, I prefer, you see that the so-called teacher it is a, it, it's a function. It's not an entity. Mm -hmm. Sure. No one, it, there is no such thing as a teacher. If a teacher thinks that they are a teacher, in my opinion, they shouldn't be teaching. Mm -hmm. Because they have mistaken an activity for their self. And, and likewise, any teacher that implicitly or explicitly encourages their student to feel that they are a student. Likewise, in my opinion, is not qualified to be teaching because nobody, just as nobody is a teacher, nobody is a student. We are all the same inherently peaceful, unconditionally fulfilled, ever present, unlimited being. We're not going to become that as a result of our practice or discipline or relationship with a teacher. We are that now. Each of us is that now. All that is necessary 
is to uh, disentangle ourselves from the overwhelming content of experience and recognize ourselves as we are and to identify ourselves as anything other than our essential being is the cause of misery. So to set oneself up as a teacher or to have students or anything, this just perpetuates suffering. There are no teachers. There are no, we are all the same being. And it is possible for when two people come together in friendship, if one of them is at peace and the other is suffering, then it is possible to share the means by which may one, one may return to one's innate peace. So in that sense, it's possible to take, take on the function of a teacher. And it's not even, uh, even, I'm, I'm, I'm very wary. Yeah, I, I get that. <laughs> even if that, what, what, why does one need to take on well, the function let, of a let, teacher? Let me ask you a question. Let me, sure. Sorry, I'm going to yeah, interrupt please. you, Stuart. Yeah, I mean, I mean uh, are we talking now as friends or are you approaching me as students and me as a teacher? I don't know what your experience is, but uh, it has not occurred to me on this conversation that you are students right. and I am a teacher all the time teaching you anything. I, I, I don't only think, but I feel that we are friends talking Right. about something that we all love. In fact, we, we, we all love it more than anything else. It, it so happens that you are asking me questions, but in, in another context or another situation, I may easily be asking you questions. But it, it, it's friendship. It's true friendship. Yeah, and, and, and I feel that way, and I, I, I get that. The, the quest, I guess the image that comes up for me though is like uh it's that disentangling of our identified experience which is the core of the suffering that people have is a as we said a work of a lifetime and and i and i sometimes feel like it's uh you know I'll, I'll use an exaggerated example here. So it, it almost feels like you're saying to someone, someone comes up to you and uh, you show them the blank canvas and you hand them a uh, uh, paintbrush and you say, all you need to do now is to paint. And using that simple example, there, there are techniques, there's methods, there's... Uh, skillful means that one can impart to someone such that they are able to more effectively fill the canvas with something that is an expression of their true being. And so in that sense, when I, I speak of the role of the teacher, I, I don't, I'm not speaking about someone who's the, you know, the monster guru on the uh, throne who is uh, wielding the, the weapons, uh, uh, yes. you know, and let, I mean, I will put aside some people have a taste for hot pepper and, 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 and there's, so there's a, there's a dispositional thing, but in general, there's still a need for the function because it's a really hard problem to disentangle the mess of identification we have and the layers of subtlety. No, 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 it's not hard at all. It's not it hard at all. And it's not hard at all. And, and it needn't take a lifetime. 
it, it's, a, it's just as simple. It could be as simple as asking yourself in any moment of experience, but what is it that knows or is aware of my experience? That uh, before or after the tidal emotion has washed through my well, system. Just whatever your experience, you're, you're, you're lost in experience mm -hmm. and you're suffering. And your friend asks you the question, but what is it that knows or is aware of this turmoil of thoughts and feelings? Pause. I am aware of it. What is this aware I that is aware of my thoughts and feelings, but is obviously not itself a thought or a feeling. There you are. It's as simple as that. You just go back to yourself. Okay. You don't have to call yourself the, the, the friend who suggests this to his or her friend. Doesn't have to call themselves a, a, a teacher. Doesn't have to call the other person a student. You're, you're, a friend has come to you suffering because they're lost in their feelings. And just out of love, out of friendship, you say, but what is it that is aware of your feelings? Oh, yeah. Just as you, Stuart, spontaneously came to that question as a seven-year-old boy, but, but who am I in the midst of this universe? It, that, and you, had a, you were taken momentarily to your true nature, spontaneously. It, it's the same, the same thing. What, what, why is any more paraphernalia why the guru teacher paraphernalia is needed the, the the pitfalls so outweigh the benefits why not just consider it friendship so i i get that and 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 i i guess i'm not going to quite let this go yet and that's uh, that's probably uh, useful uh, because we spent a good part of the conversation talking about the phase in which one goes back the tantric path or one goes to the world. Now, if one has the disposition and the stabilization such that they can readily return to their true nature, then what I hear you suggesting is that all that's really necessary is a gentle friend to uh, assist at times when one loses sight of what that work is and that it's not necessary to have a hierarchical relationship or a uh, complex set of practices. Not at all. No. Simply, simply a uh, utilization of life as it presents itself and a friend standing nearby who might have a little more perspective is all that's really necessary to assist someone in that deepening. Well, you, you, you the friend who is nearby need, needs to uh, be established in the piece yes, of their true nature. Yes. yes. Uh, otherwise, obviously, they, they, they cannot take you there. Right. But right. a, a spiritual friend. <laughs> a spiritual friend. Yes. yes. So, uh, um, but more than that is not necessary. Okay. I mean, if I were to ask you now, what is it that knows or is aware of your experience? Where does your attention go? It goes to that which is knowing. Yeah. And what is the nature of that? And the nature of that is uh, it's the nature of awareness or the nature of presence or the nature of spaciousness. 
but, and, but if you were to give it a, I know it doesn't really have qualities, but if you were to give it a kind of an, an everyday quality, what would you say it's, it's, it's quality? Oh, is it the, the words that we use like happiness or it's, yes, it's the it, essence it, of love? It, it's, it's loving. It's at peace. Yeah. It, it ha there's no agitation. There's no sense of lack. And so no extraordinary means are necessary in order to all seven billion of us have direct access to their own being. It's not complicated. It needn't take a lifetime. You don't have to subscribe to any guru or any spiritual tradition. You don't have to embark on any elaborate practices. You don't have to discipline yourself. You just have to pause from time to time in the stream of, in, in, during the stream of experience and just pause, stop, ask oneself a question such as, but what is it that knows or is aware of this experience? Or, uh, um, or another, another version of the same approach. Uh, all day long, we say to ourselves, um, um, I'm just waking up, I'm having a shower, I'm eating breakfast, I'm traveling to work, I'm talking with my colleagues, I'm answering emails, I feel tired, I'm, I'm lonely, I'm sad, I'm etc., 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 all day long. Always the same I am. We always refer to the same basic self, which is then qualified by various thoughts, uh, feelings, activities, states, relationships. But in each of these statements, we refer to the same I or I am. Now, if we, if we take the, the simple thought I am or the sense of being myself, and we don't allow that sense of ourself or our being to be qualified by experience. What is that? It's just our pure being. And its nature is already at peace. It does not need to be made peaceful. And no elaborate methods are necessary. All the elaborate methods are a preparation for this direct approach. All the elaborate methods are only required when this direct approach is considered to be too direct. But in the end, uh, our attention or our love, our attention if we're on the path of knowledge or jnana or our love if we're on the path of love or, or, or devotion or bhakti has to return to its source. Attention has to come back to its source. Devotion has to come back to its source in love. And the, the, that's why the ultimate prayer is not to a God outside of ourselves. It is the return of our devotion to its source in love. And on the direct path is exactly the same return, but it is the return of our attention to its source in awareness. Nothing could be simpler. It doesn't take a lot of time. No, no complex practices are required and it need not take a lifetime. Let me, let me ask you, um, because you, you yourself, you've um, alluded to it in this conversation and, um, and I've read that, that uh, you spent a fair amount of time before um, 
before you, um, as I understand it, found this direct path and um, pursued it yourself. Yes. If that's the word, if that's the word yes. I should use. Yes. Um, um, might it not be the case? And I ask because I honestly don't know. Uh, might it not be the case that all these um, aspects, at least many of them, would be might be part of what you were calling the progressive, a progressive path as opposed to direct? Might that not be what um, God? in its wisdom um, has created for some people to yes. experience in one way, other people to experience in another way, etc. Absolutely, that there are numerous paths and each of these paths has been elaborated at some stage in history, in history uh, to account for a, a certain stage or level of understanding mm -hmm. of whoever was asking the the question. So, uh, absolutely, all, all of these paths are appropriate. They have all been elaborated in response to a particular person or, or difficulty, and they are, as such, valid. Uh, all I'm suggesting is that uh, that this direct approach is, in a way, the well, it is what it says. It, it's direct. We just mm -hmm. go directly from our current experience to our being without the need of any intermediary. And I'm not trying to say that it's better. I'm not making any uh, implicit judgments about the progressive path. I'm just trying to describe the difference between them. Yeah, but you, you've, I've heard you suggest that you feel like the direct path is uniquely suitable to the current times. That, that's very true. I do feel that um, I suppose since the well, maybe since the, the 1950s in the, in the latter half of the of the last century the uh, the essence of all the great religious traditions began to be available in so in um, in the Muslim tradition the Sufi tradition began was exposed in the Hindu tradition uh, in the Hindu religion the the Advaita Vedanta approach in Buddhism uh, the Dzogchen and the Zen traditions began to emerge so these were the um, as Aldous Huxley called them the perennial philosophy, the esoteric core or heart of all the great religious traditions. And, and these uh, became increasingly available, um, particularly in the West, but, but, but in the world in the latter half of the last century. What I feel is happening now is that the essence of all these esoteric teachings has now become available. So just as Zen and Dzogchen were the esoteric core of the Buddhist tradition, uh, just as Sufism was the, is the esoteric core of the Muslim tradition, Vedanta, the esoteric core of the Hindu religion, I would suggest that the, the direct path is the essence of all these esoteric traditions. 
mystical Christianity, Sufism, Zen, Dzogchen, that the, the, the direct path is the distilled essence of all these esoteric paths. And I, I feel that our, our age now, that the direct path only used to be given to initiates, as we said earlier, who had spent sometimes 20, 30 years on a progressive path. I feel that our age is now ripe for this direct path and that this, this approach should be made available to anybody that, that wants it. After all, if you ask, if we were to ask how many people in the world are interested in enlightenment, well, what would you say? 10,000, 100,000? I, I don't know. Let's say 100,000. But if you were to ask how many people in the world are interested in peace and happiness? 7 billion. It's the same thing. Enlightenment is just, as the Buddha said, the end of suffering. What's the common name for the end of suffering? Happiness. Happiness is not this precious, rarefied commodity that just a hundred thousand special people are interested in. Seven billion people want peace and happiness more than anything else. Why should the direct path to peace and happiness not be made available to everyone without their having to subscribe to any particular religious or spiritual tradition and without their having to devote themselves <clears throat> to any particular person or teacher. Well, it's interesting you, you make that point because just lately I've been reflecting on the, uh, the apparent disappearance compared to my, my youth of, uh, of famous teachers that people would invest a lot of um, love, attention, devotion upon. I mean, I, I've, it's been something that um, maybe I'm slow about it, but, um, but I've noticed, I've been noticing that that doesn't seem to be a feature of the contemporary period. Yes, yes. I, I think because that, uh, and of course, there have been very great teachers in, in, the, sure. in, in the genre that you are describing. But there has also been so much abuse of that relationship that people are, are wary, and, and rightly so, mm -hmm. of this relationship. And I know, Stuart, you were pressing me a little bit on this earlier. And, of, of course, I, I understand where you're coming from. And, but, but I... Uh, just as you were a little bit tenacious with your questions, I, I wanted to, although I, of course I understand and sympathize mm -hmm. with your point of view, I know exactly, having been devoted to my teacher, I know exactly the student-teacher relationship that you are referring to. But I think that, uh, I think that the relationship has evolved mm -hmm. uh, over the last couple of decades. And I don't think the uh, the formality of the student-teacher relationship, with all its potential pitfalls and uh, is necessary anymore. I would also su suggest uh, that uh, what you're doing and how you are presenting this teaching scales more than the intimate 
uh, sort of intensive student teacher relationship and the way in which you make use of media, for instance, to have this conversation with many people is a very interesting uh, gift to the world because it uh, yes, has a lot more people to touch. And, you know, if, if, if the Buddha uh, had, had had the possibility of a YouTube channel, do you think he would, <laughs> do you think he would not have taken it? Of course he would. He, he, Thank you for that amusing image. <laughs> no, but, but, but many Buddhists take a vow, if I'm right, correct me if I'm wrong, but many Buddhists take a, a vow that they will in some ways postpone their own enlightenment until all beings yeah. are right. in, in that That's beautiful. That's a beautiful in, intention that, that that, that, ev that happiness is everybody's birthright. Isn't, isn't that what the Buddha himself, he didn't want 300 students of his to be enlightened. He wanted everyone to, he wanted everyone to experience what he called the end of suffering, which is uh, the common name for which is, is happiness. So of course, if he had had a YouTube channel he would have given it. Well, why not? It's, of course, as you know, I, I do um, meetings and, and retreats and, and probably let's say um, how many people come to my retreats every year, maybe between two and 3,000 possibly. You know, they, they may grow a little bit over the next few years. They may not. So let's say they grow a little bit and at some stage, 5,000 people pass through a meeting or a retreat every year. But that's 5,000 people. But 7 billion people want happiness. Why should this understanding, and I don't mean to imply that I am by any means the only person speaking of this understanding, not at all, but why should this understanding not be made available through every possible means? to be made available to, to anyone who wants it. And given that we can be sure that all 7 billion people want peace and happiness above all else, potentially a lot of people would be interested in, in this simple, easy, direct approach. Well, that's a perfect place to draw the conversation to an end. <laughs> <laughs> so we very much thank you for the uh, uh, your time today and the, uh, the clarity of your conversation. Yeah, and I've I've really uh, um, benefited from it personally. Good. Uh, well, it's a pleasure to talk with you both, and you both uh, you both make it very easy to to speak of these matters because you you you, you ask very very clear, insightful questions. So th thank you both. Well, thank you for, thank you for those kind words, and um, I look forward to future contact. Yeah. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick, joined by co-host Rob Schmidt. This week on the show, we featured a conversation pre-recorded on February 28, 2020, with Rupert Spira. Rupert Spira is an international teacher of the Advaita Vedanta Direct Path Method of Spiritual Self-Inquiry through talks and writing, and a notable English potter and studio potter with work in public and private collections. 
Rupert will be giving a seven-day retreat at Mercy Center in Burlingame, California. That's March 20th through March 27th, 2020. The address is the Mercy Center, 2300 Adeline Drive in Burlingame, California. And live streaming of the whole event will be available as well. For more information on this event, go to non-duality.rupertspira.com to find out about registration for uh, on-site participation and for the live stream. Upcoming on the spiritual calendar in Sonoma County, The Mirror of Shinto with Jim Wilson, co-founder of Mini Rivers Books and Tea. That's Thursday, March 12th at 7.30 p.m., Mini Rivers Books and Tea, 130 South Main Street in Sebastopol, California. Jim Wilson is a poet and writer on religious and spiritual topics and a co-founder of Mini Rivers Books and Tea. He is the author of at least 15 poetry titles, including A Night of Many Sonnets and Hiking the Quatrain Range. In the spiritual realm, Jim has written an annotated edition of A Guide to True Peace, Communion in the Manner of Friends, a manual for Quaker communion, and his latest work on Trusting the Heart, a commentary on the Shen Shen Ming. This latest book was predominantly written 30 years ago when Jim was acting as a teacher in the Korean Chogye Zen tradition, having spent six full years as a full ordination monk in that tradition under his teacher Sun San. Jim went on to become a Buddhist chaplain at an institution for the criminally insane, and he eventually transitioned from Buddhism to the Quaker tradition, his current spiritual home. And then on Friday, March 13th, Angels the Native Way with Native Californian healer Trina Vega. This is part of a weekly series on Fridays with facilitator Native healer Trina Vega. Trina writes, I have experienced angels my entire life of a short journey on earth of 62 years. I will assist you in linking with and hearing your own angels. Come join us in really getting to know your angels, spirit guides, and guardian angels. It will also include hearing from past loved ones. Let's start off the new year with opening to the spiritual native realm of angels. Many blessings, Trina Vega. Trina Vega is a Native American healer who practices a diverse menu of healings from Native Grandmother Ocean to healing with the angels. She is an intuitive reader and has practiced and offered readings for 30 plus years. She is the youthful and energetic grandmother to 18 grandchildren. And then again, just to mention that Rupert Spira is giving a seven-day retreat at the Mercy Center in California from Friday, March 20th through Friday, March 27th. That's Mercy Center, 2300 Adeline Drive, Burlingame, California. Live streaming of the whole event will be available. Go to non-duality.rupertspira.com for more information. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com and join us again next Saturday.